Come on, let's go. Are you ready? A good friend of mine, Dave Hunt, shared a story with me uh, about a popular Presbyterian pastor named J. Vernon McGee. Did you know that J. Vernon McGee is from uh, a little place just north of us called Hillsboro, where our dear friends from Hillsboro are from? Uh, he actually went to uh, a seminary, the same seminary that I did, Dallas Theological Seminary. So I feel like I've got, okay, I don't know much about him, but I like him so far. He's most known for uh, Through the Bible Radio Network program where he systematically taught through the whole scriptures in two and a half year period. And then I guess there's a five year program that's out there too. He has since deceased, I think in 1985, Becky was telling me. He called it the Bible bus trip. Like Spurgeon, he had a great sense of humor. And like Spurgeon, his humor got him into trouble a lot of times. Particularly with one challenging woman in his church. She would... Uh, chastised him and criticized him for his use of humor when he would teach or when he would preach. Uh, she would come up to him personally after an engagement or write letters to him. Thankfully, she was not born and he was not around during the email era. That would have been a nightmare for him. Can you imagine? Um, but even more uh, upsetting to her was that he seemed to find God's humor in the Bible and he would point it out whenever it happened. It just appalled her. It was very tough for her. Well, as she went to be with the Lord, McGee said of her, she's gone to be with the Lord now. And I hope she's having a good time there because I don't think she had any on earth. (laughs) I think she was weaned on a dill pickle. (laughs) Golly. What would y'all do if I said something like that? Huh? Yeah. All right. Well, I am going to say something like that. All of us here, when it comes to worship music, We all act like we're weaned on a dill pickle, myself included. And it doesn't matter what denomination you're from. It doesn't matter your church demographic. It doesn't matter the size of the church across all denominational, theological, cultural, demographical lines. We all act like we're weaned on a dill pickle when it comes to worship music. So the question is this, can we have, is it possible today, in today's climate, in today's world, is it possible to have a reasonable, biblical, depersonal, unemotional conversation about worship music? What do you think? Please stand from the hearing of God's word. Oh, one thing we are going to do. Uh, the Exodus 31, 1 through 6, we're just going to take that off the table. So John, I know you're coming up here to read. Just pick up right at First Chronicles and take it from there. Thank you, brother. First Chronicles 15.3, and David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of, the, of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. Chenaniah, leader of the Levites in music, should direct the music, for he understood it. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went up to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, 
and the singers, and Chenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers, and David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets, and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. And as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating, and she despised him in her heart. Moving over to Ephesians. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Finally, in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would shine on the page. Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you anoint us? Would you enable us to hear, to listen, to behold uh, wonderful things from your word? Give us great clarity uh, and push that light uh, to generate real heat and passion and vitality and realness in our life. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, look at First Chronicles 15, 29 in your bulletin. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, also David's wife, remember that, looked out the window, saw the king dancing and rejoicing and despised him in her heart. That is the first documented account of a worship war. Right there. In the text, do you see it? I mean, despising someone for their worship style is never a good thing to do, no matter what. So right away, we can kind of put that off to the side, and we could say, that's just not a good thing to do. It's never good to look superiority condescendingly down on someone else for anything. doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. It's just never good to do. So we can, we can take that in this discussion and say, we don't want to do that no matter what, even if I'm right. We don't want to do that, Okay. All right, the, the other is this. It's fascinating that in the tabernacle, in the tabernacle that has been so meticulous, I mean, seven chapters of meticulous detail on how to build the thing, what elements are to be in each room, what the core building material should look like, the instructions, how to compose it. Remember the priest's dress? How detailed down to the cloth, down to the colors on the cloth, down to pouches that carry stones on the breastplate. I mean, incredible, phenomenal detail. And then the sacrifices. The system is phenomenal. Then you get step-by-step construction process, seven chapters now of saying the same thing, except this time saying they did it. They did it. They did it. They did it. All that meticulous detail about the tabernacle, isn't it striking? There's no meticulous detail whatsoever about the worship music in the tabernacle. In fact, there's no music at all in the tabernacle. The first documented written account of worship music being used in the public worship of God is right here in 1 Chronicles. 
Remember the ark, the Philistines had it. Now they're bringing it in. They're going to create another tent, a temporary setup, because David wanted to build a temple. Solomon ends up building the temple. But while that's happening, this is the first time. So 500 years after the tabernacle, we get worship music. And I facetiously said and jokingly said, because she despised him for more than just his dancing and his worship. But you kind of get the point. It's almost like right from the get-go, as soon as you talk about worship music, someone's fighting. Right? Something's going on. So here's the application right off the bat. We all need to lighten up about worship music. Every single one of us. We all need to put down the pickle. So let's put it down and let's see if it's possible to have an intelligent, biblical, non-personal, in other words, unemotional, conversation about worship music. Paul says it's possible So here's some of the questions we're going to answer or try to answer along the way. Are you ready? How do we make meaningful choices about worship music? How do we move beyond the war of personal, generational, cultural preferences for worship music? I mean, come on, let's face it. Guys, we sing things up here. We sing together things I don't like to sing. And neither do you. But guess what? It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about us. And so we will bend. We will bend to each other because that is meaningful to someone here. There's a particular Easter hymn that we sing almost every year and I can't stand it. I have to hold my nose every time I come up here. But I know, I know certain generations and certain groups of people in this church love it. Okay? So I'll hold my nose. And I'll do my best to sing it. We all have to do that. Every single one of us have to do that. Either that or just go, you know, listen to your favorite music station all the time. You can do that. All right, so here's some helpful directions in Ephesians 5, 18 through 19, Colossians 3, 16. These are the only two places in the New Testament giving us some kind of instruction for worship music. The only two. And notice both passages are saying the same thing. They're just given a different angle, a different color, a different texture of what's already said in one passage. They both happen in church, which is historically called public worship or gathered worship. So in other words, this isn't a quiet time passage. This isn't a private devotional passage. This is a, a church passage. So can I just do a brief time out while the iron's hot? Paul would know nothing. He would scratch his head at the home church movement. He would scratch his head at family church movement. He would scratch his head at St. Mattress Church. The church is the community gathered. Yes, the church is the community scattered. We believe that when we scatter, we scatter to our families and we scatter to our relationships. We scatter to good works. We scatter to our jobs and our vocations. We scatter to the world around us. We scatter to our our recreational, our kids' sports, we scatter because we are meant to scatter and that's part of being the church. But don't mistake this. The engine of the church is the church gathered. The power of the church is the church gathered. So much so that in Hebrews, he says the church Gathered is the engine, and I just want to warn you, he says to people that go to church, don't get in the harmful habit of not being here. 
you're hurting yourself spiritually. Now, are we going to miss? Of course we're going to miss. Am I going to miss church? Of course I'm going to miss church. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, don't get in that harmful habit. Don't regularly do that. And the reason why, I mean, why? If all we did, if all church was about is singing, I mean, I'd rather listen to the radio than some of y'all. Right? If all church is about is reciting liturgy back to each other, listening to a sermon, some yoke will get up here and talk for 30, 40, 50 minutes. If it's about observing the sacraments in a ritualistic way, if all of church is that, then shoot yes. We should regularly miss it. Sleep's better. I mean, my kids, I'm tired of my kids not playing select. So we should do all of that, right? But the point of church, and outside of any other place, God has promised to show up here in a special way, unlike your quiet time. So this is why we go to church, because Jesus shows up, and he shows up, and that changes everything, okay? All right, timeout's over, let's keep going. First thing that Paul says about intelligent, biblical, unemotional conversation about worship music is this. Colossians 3.16, the centrality of the gospel is everything about worship. Uh, 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The you is plural, so the context again is church gathered. These are church texts, not private quiet time texts. This could be translated, let the message that proclaims Christ, let the message that proclaims the gospel be constantly at the center of the community's life, its worship, and its ministry. That's literal translation, Jeff Hatton translation of that text. What that means is this, at the center means richly. The gospel is to be um, becoming clearer and clearer to our minds collectively together. It's to becoming more real to our hearts collectively together. In other words, the gospel is ever growing and ever more pressing into and reaching and shaping and structuring and pushing into those unevangelized places in our lives and, and hitting home and penetrating and bearing fruit there. In an ever increasing, ever more powerful, ever more deepening way. And Paul is saying, let it happen. Oh, let it happen. The gospel must be the hub, it must be the center, it must be the engine of everything that's done in church. So obviously that includes worship music. Uh, Tim Keller, he says it this way, he always says it so well. Every service, in fact, everything of the church is focused on one singular truth. Here it is. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is not one truth among many, but the message to which all truths point. This understanding affects virtually everything related to worship, from liturgy structure and music selection to preaching and the way the worship leaders address every topic. It frees us from the tyranny of creating thematic worship as if there is ultimately only one theme to every service. Gospel centrality creates a narrative framework and provides cohesiveness to all the areas and elements of a worship service, end quote. 
Second point, the apostle's intelligent, biblical, unemotional conversation about worship starts with the centrality of the gospel and moves to the primary instrument in worship. Do you know what that is? It's the, no, it's not the piano. It's the, no, it's not the organ. It's the, um, no, it's not stringed instruments. And it's certainly not a cowbell. And it's not... What is it? Is it, is it a choir? Is it uh, the soloist? What is the primary instrument in worship? It's not even the human voice. It's the heart. The human heart. 316. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5, 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make melody with the Lord, to the Lord with your heart. The focus of the heart of worship is, is getting it to the DNA of who you and I are. You can't get more descriptive about the identity of a human being than saying they're a worshiper, that they worship. So remember, when sin came into the picture, and when we sin, it doesn't end our worship. All our sin does is begin the worship of anything. Anything. The design intent of gathered worship is to reset our hearts on God. The reason why we do this every Sunday is because we need to have our hearts reset week after week after week. We get our hearts reset to true worship here on Sundays because during the week, we, we collect counterfeit gods like trash into our hearts. We carve counterfeit gods all week long. We crave them all week long, so much so that the counterfeit gods are more real to our hearts and more clear to our minds than God is. And so if we have to, we get ourselves in here, crawling, getting in here. And when we get in here, Jesus shows up. And he shows up in all his wonder, and he shows up in all his worth, and he shows up in all his work. And he shows up in his majesty, and he shows up in the the depths of his love and his compassion. And he becomes more clear to our minds and more real to our hearts and our hearts get reset. And it replaces the counterfeit gods because only Jesus' presence is powerful enough to drive it out. You can't will that to be. You can't say, stop, stop it, stop it. You can't do that. You're not powerful enough to do that. One person describes it this way, says our hearts are like a bucket of water on a very cold day, a 32 degree, below 32 degree kind of day. You know what that means? You got a bucket of water, you set it out there long enough, what's going to happen? It's going to ice over, right? Freeze over. Constantly, it will freeze over unless the ice is constantly smashed by gathered worship. If we don't come where Jesus shows up, our hearts will turn to ice. When we do, he smashes the ice. 
turns it over, resets your heart. What are some reasonable musical implications for the heart being the primary instrument in the worship of God? What's some reasonable implications? Look at Ephesians 5, 19 again. There's two here. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Singing is obvious, the human voice. Do you notice that saying, again, the context here, the emphasis here is on congregational singing. So it's singing together. It doesn't mean you don't have solos and you don't have trios and you don't have barbershop quartets or whatever we do. But what's to characterize the worship of God is singing together. Now, the next, making melody in the original language means literally to pluck. It means to play a stringed instrument. So here's what's going on. The point here is this. Paul is saying the heart is served in worship. It's served. It's it's helped. It's assisted by singing and instruments. Singing and instruments serve the heart in worship. Number one, they serve the heart by expressing what's going on in the heart. Expressing your joy, expressing and embodying your praise and your delight and your passion and your confidence in God and and your trust in him, but also celebrating your pain and your doubts and your hurts and your suffering the hardness of our hearts, the foolishness of our hearts. Do you realize that the, the whole Psalter gets that whole range of human emotion and human condition and the Psalter was given to Israel as a singing book? There's one particular Psalm where it says this and it's worship in there because it's in there. Darkness is my friend. Everyone's left me. And darkness is my best Singing and instruments have to capture that and help the heart there. The Psalms give us mental and emotional health because it's about the human existence and reality. It's not make-believe. It also assists the heart's worship in that it helps the heart to understand what's going on with itself and help the heart feel what's going on with itself and help the heart and the mind enter into the reality of God and the reality of life. In other words, it gives your heart a voice. How many times does psalmist say, ah, I give ear to my words, O God, so he consciously can say, this is what I'm saying, but then he says, hearken unto the voice of my cry. What is that? It's so deep. It's so unknown and it's so subconscious, he doesn't even know what's going on. But God does. And singing and music is supposed to give voice to that. Help us, help us understand ourselves and help us understand and feel what's really going on in our life and honestly be a human being before God. All right. Second reasonable implication, if singing and instruments serve the heart in worship, then whatever singing and whatever instruments serve the heart, do it. Whatever singing, whatever instruments do not serve the heart, don't do it. And you're saying, well, that doesn't help. And I'm going to say, yes, it does. Because it's about gospel wisdom, not musical laws. What I mean by that is this. 
The centrality of the gospel will penetrate and express and embody a particular people. And when it does, the singing and the instruments must embody, must reflect, must express, must assist the reality of the gospel in life. Do you know why we like hymns so much in the 15th century or in the 1500s? And why there are several areas in the history of the church where we kind of gravitate towards. Some of us do a little unhealthily. We, get, we kind of get traditionalistic and say that's the only stuff that can be done. Bull. The reason why it's so rich and it's so wealthy because those were times when the gospel was in a revival. And the gospel was soaking and saturating and embodying and expressing multitudes and multitudes of people. It changed Western society. So of course there's going to be wealth and riches and a treasure trove for the church in those time periods. That doesn't mean you don't do it today. So it's about gospel wisdom, not musical laws. It's about, it's about the wisdom of the, of the church collectively. It's about a treasure trove that each generation puts in gospel riches into that treasure trove that each generation pulls out of and says, oh, this is awesome, and then adds its own to it. And that's the way it should be, collective wisdom. You take from it, you add to it. Constant treasure trove of the church taking all the better resources of music and instrumentality. It means you've got to do the hard work of a localized gospel culture to where we here don't ape certain churches in certain places in certain situations. We don't ape them because they're not us. Okay? This means this. This, is, uh, this might be more helpful. The baby boomer praise and worship music that came out of the Willow Creek megachurch movement. You know, when the megachurch is really big, all the churches look like malls and they're all about two to 10,000 size. The music that came out of that time may or may not be wise for today. But wisdom would tell. And it may or may not be wise for Redeemer. Okay? I can't stand the old James Bond movies. Um, it's like watching a Broadway show for me. And Broadway shows for me, listen, I know you guys like Broadway shows. I know you do. I'm just, I'm, this is me. I can't stand them. Everything's big. Everything's bigger than life. It's, it's this, it's, it's, it's this, right? It's just huge. It's just smiles and, you know, I mean, I'm just like, so I can't, James Bond, the old James Bond is like that. You know the one problem I had about him? He never bled. He never bleeds. He always saves the day. He always comes through. He always wins. He always has 10 different women of the most beautiful women ever, right? He has all the girl. He has it all, right? And then I, 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 I went and saw, someone says, you really need to go see Daniel Craig's James Bond. I said, okay. Opening scene, a fight in the bathroom. It's one of the most brutal, nasty, raw fights because that's the way fights are. I've seen on film. And when he eventually gets the bad guy, you're bleeding. He doesn't win the day 
all the time. He's a deeply flawed character. People he cares deeply about don't make it. And he actually cares deeply about someone. Gospel wisdom in seeing an instrumentality must embody and express the full range of reality. Not just happy clappy, the full range of reality. Now, I was going to end, but I had more time in the first service, and I have time here, so I'm going to keep going. I was going to make this a two-parter, but we're rolling. Last, the apostles' intelligent, biblical, unemotional conversation about worship music, what does it do? It centers on the centrality of the gospel, hitting the heart, the primary instrument in worship. How? How does it do that? Remember the Colossians, he gives his first answer. Earlier in the book he says, by preaching and teaching, through preaching and teaching, Jesus shows up through preaching and teaching, heaven's unleashed, through preaching and teaching, God is at work. And then he adds one thing more. Did you pick up on it? By singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He adds singing and instruments to causing the gospel to live rich among you and me. Do you know what that means? When we sing together, we sing the gospel into each other's hearts. We each have a gospel ministry and a gospel call every Sunday morning. I mean, practically, let's break this down. Do you want your child to get the gospel? Sing. Do you want the person sitting next to you that you love and the person across the aisle that you love and the person that's struggling that you know of in church and the person that's going through doubts and the person that needs Jesus in a very special, specific way in church? Sing. 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 And you get to sing Jesus into each other's heart. It's mysterious, but it's there. Because these are participles modifying a main verb, telling you how it's done. How does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Teach, certainly. Admonish, you bet, and sing. Now to the last part that everybody really wants to know what we're doing. What do we sing? It's the last question. So what do we sing, Jeff? What is it? Coldplay? Opera? Bon Jovi? Cheesy Christian? Please, no, please. Please not be cheesy Christian. (laughs) Classical? I'll put up with it. I'll put up with it. Right? I'll put up with it. Country? Nirvana? Beatles? What is it? What do we do? The answer is in both passages. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Do you see that? Uh, The scholarly consensus is this. I'm going to mention it really quick. Psalms are songs based on scripture, which obviously includes the psalms. So songs that are based on scripture are what psalms are. Okay. Hymns are poetic material about Christ set to song. So I want you to think of the Red Book, Trinity Hymnal. Poetic material about Christ set to song. Think of RUF, 
the RU, what's called the RUF genre. What that means is taking the old hymns, redoing them, possibly in an instrumentality that might express a fuller range of the human condition and the human state and gospel realities. Slim and I have many conversations inside the PCA, outside the PCA, and it's been noted, it's been fascinating as we've done this, where people have said to us, you guys want to sing RUF stuff on top of the hymns, but nobody knows the RUF songs in these new tunes. So how is it relevant? That's a great question, except RUF tunes now and these redoing of the hymns are now starting to break in and break out across denominational lines. Because I think people are starving for a new James Bond. The bigger and the better and the clap happy stuff is going away. It might capture one particular aspect of the human condition at a certain time, but it certainly can't account for all of it. If everything is big and ballady, come on. Uh, then the other one is spiritual songs. Now, I'm just going to mention what the scholars say because I don't know what they mean. Spontaneous compositions prompted by the Spirit. What is that? Spontaneous compositions prompted by the Spirit. I'm guessing it's like reading a Trevigian book. It's like those are devotional books, right? It's like reading a Keller book. Who's your favorite? A C.S. Lewis book. It's like a spirit-prompted composition. And I think that mostly, possibly, and I might be speaking not fully, um, of contemporary music. Now, this is very confusing because contemporary music is now, is now a, um, it's become a genre or a family of, of a style of music. I don't mean contemporary music meaning 80s and 90s. Contemporary music meaning what's done today. <laughs> all right so when people say we do contemporary music no you don't you do the cheesy stuff from the 80s and the 90s that's not contemporary music there is good contemporary music being done today really good stuff being done i've heard it cross denominational we're trying to bring some of that stuff in think of like Ten Thousand reasons that music cuts across every every denomination is singing that that means it's good stuff that means you got to give it a look. You can't say, well, we're not going to sing that because it's contemporary. Then you're out of line with the gospel. Because the gospel moralizes no music style. But you are. Right? All right, think of new music. Uh, that's why we want to do selective contemporary music. Um, we got Christ Alone Getty. We sang one of the Gettys. That would be one of those hymns that would go into the hymns. So you got psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So how are we going to do it? Pull out your little card that's in your, it's in your bulletin. Um, this is a Venn or Venn or whatever diagram, whatever that is. Do you see the three forms here? You have the high music form. That's music that is like, think of it being vertical. It's music that's done vertically out of sheer Excellence in professionability, trained ability, classically trained. I mean, it would be like, um, what would this happen one time? Our, uh, Linnea, and I love her, we're dear friends. She uh, was doing our worship when we first started uh, over at TCA. And she was an opera singer trying to make it in New York. And she was doing it, and she had us lead, do one song 
that I mean she was the only one that can sing. She was the only one that could sing it. In the, middle of the, in the middle of the song, I could see nobody could sing it, and I said, okay, a timeout. Let's do Great is Thy Faithfulness. Can we sing that one, right? It's music for its sheer vertical realities. It's good stuff. We want to do that stuff, but it doesn't mean that all of that stuff is accessible to us. The other stuff over here, folk music, that's stuff that's written more horizontally, not vertically. It's not written just for the, the trained it's now the, the, the folk is most hymns. Most hymns are folk. They're written for the congregation to sing. All right? So in there, we're going to do hymns, and we're going to do uh, RUF, redone hymns. Poetic material being written today and from the past about Christ. And then over here, contemporary, I would say you could just write in selective contemporary. Because notice the blue circle, that's where... It's accessible to this congregation and it's appropriate for this congregation and it's embodied and culturally relevant for this congregation. So that might mean polka music is not a part of that for this congregation. But if you go up to the cowboy church, which I have a buddy up there, uh, you're going to hear polka music, right? So don't, let's not despise it. Although I don't like it, I'm not going to despise it. All right, so you see, that's what we're trying to do. And so I guess what I want to say to y'all is we're trying to figure this out. We really want to do this, and we really want to do it well. And some days we're going to hit a home run, and some days we're going to strike out. One song is going to be out of the park. One song is going to be a dud. We know that. You don't need to tell us. Seriously. (laughs) You don't. You really don't. We know that. And again... We sing stuff, just so you know, we sing stuff that I don't like. So if you don't like it, you come up to me, I'm going to tell you, I don't like it either. But we're singing it. Okay. All right, how are we going to end here? Here it is. An intelligent, biblical, unemotional, this was unemotional, wasn't it? Conversation about worship music consists of the centrality of the gospel, hitting the heart, which is the primary instrument in worship, by means of singing the gospel into each other's hearts. Amen. Amen.